Let me share with you a little bit about my childhood. Ever since I was a little boy, I wanted to feel that I measure up, that I have the stamp of approval from those who are important to me in my life. I can remember back into my childhood wanting to experience that sense of approval. And I did receive a lot of those things. I can remember time after time my parents telling me that they love me and that they're proud of me. I remember uh, spiritual mentors in my life from church, from whether it was Awana or Sunday school, telling me that they were proud of me. And they thought it was cool that I was seeking the Lord and seeking to serve others. And I remember other times with my peers, my friends, receiving that approval. Times that we would get together and whether we were making goofy videos or doing a uh, talent show at fall camp and playing U2 songs, playing on the guitar and jumping on the pogo stick, whatever it was, receiving that approval from multiple different areas. And you may have had a similar experience. I want you to think back to your childhood or your younger years. I want you to think about what are some of the ways that you sought to gain approval from the people that matter most to you. Maybe it was your grades. Maybe it was the academic pursuits that you were trying to seek approval from your teachers or from your parents. Maybe it was in sports, seeking to excel, whether it was a sport or dance or music, seeking to find that approval. I know that some of us have also fallen into the temptation to seek approval even in the context of toxic relationships that have required us to do things maybe that we're not comfortable with or that are harmful to us just to try to find that sense of approval we so desperately crave. For so many of us, we've actually never stopped looking for that approval even as we've become adults and parents and grandparents, many of us still ask the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough to matter in this life? Do I have approval from my boss? Do I have approval from my family? And most importantly of all, do I have approval from God, my Creator? Well, in our passage today, we are continuing in our sermon series looking at seven different miracles that Jesus performed and we can see in the Gospel of John. And as we look at these miracles, this specific miracle today, we are going to see a stark contrast between true healing and false holiness. Jesus Christ has and exercises the power to transform and to heal people. But too often, we forego that true healing. We forego that true life from God, and instead we turn to our own man-made strategies. In our passage today, we are going to see some useless strategies to gaining that approval from God. And when you walk away from this message today, I want you to walk away confident that Jesus is the one who can bring physical and spiritual healing that he desires for your life. And I want you to be able to walk away ready to lay aside all of the man-made strategies that we have put together for earning God's approval. Today we're going to see Jesus values true healing over 
false holiness every day of the week. Let me say that again. Jesus values true healing over false holiness every day of the week, and so should we. Let me pray for us today. Father, as we come before your word, we are ready to hear from you. God, we want to yield to you and your plan for our lives. Lord, we want to hear the way that you care about us. Lord, and what that looks like, not only for the man who is transformed in our story today, but we want to see what your transformation looks like in our own lives. God, I pray that you would speak to us. We yield to you in this time, whatever it is you have for us. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, there are four proofs in our passage today that we're going to look at to see that Jesus does value the true healing over false holiness. And I want to give you the first one. The first proof is this. Jesus cares about our physical well-being. Jesus cares about our physical well-being. This last week, I know that many of you experienced a, a very alarming situation, probably at the exact same moment that I did uh, in my life, in my home. And that was that on May 15th, around midnight, tornado sirens pierced the night sky. It was storming, and I could hear the tornado sirens go off right there at midnight. Now, we're all used to hearing tornado sirens at 10 a.m. on the first Tuesday of every month. We're used to hearing that as a test. But I knew on a Thursday night at midnight, that was not a test. This was something to take seriously. So Emily and I, we got out of bed. We went and we got our kids, picked up all the kids that we could carry, which was all three of them, carried them downstairs into our basement where we could continue to sleep on a spare mattress that we have down there. I actually saw later uh, on Facebook, uh, one of my friends, instead of carrying his children down the stairs, he carried one of his rare pair of Air Jordan shoes. Is what, that's what he carried down into the basement. But uh, I'm not, whatever it was that you carried down into the basement with you, I'm not going to hold that against you. But we carried our kids down there, and as our kids got comfortable, we looked online, and the siren turned off, and we realized, okay, the warning is over so we carried our kids back up the 20-something stairs and got them settled back in our beds, got back into our own bed, and, and we looked out the window and we started to see some of those 60-mile-an-hour winds that the Weather Channel was telling us about on our phones. We saw the trees leaning over pretty far. We've got some trees that are close to windows, so what did we decide? We're going back downstairs. We picked our kids back up, went downstairs, and slept there until about 2 in the morning. Now, why did we do that? There's a few different reasons. One is because our kids in the middle of the night, they really can't even tell which way is up. They're so sleepy. Uh, there's no really uh, way to help them uh, walk all the way down the stairs. That's one reason. Another reason was the impending danger. We said, okay, here's a warning going on. We want to keep them safe. But perhaps the main reason that we did that was because we care about the physical well-being of our children. We care about the physical well-being of our kids. And in our passage today, we see that Jesus, God who put on flesh, caring for the physical well-being of a man, it doesn't seem that Jesus has ever met in person before. In this story today, we are going to see that Jesus values true healing over false holiness every day of the week. We've got a clip to take a look at together, so let's take a look at the opening scene 
of this drama today. After this, Jesus went to Jerusalem for a religious festival. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool with five porches. In Hebrew, it is called Besatha. A large crowd of sick people were lying on the porches. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. A man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that the man had been sick for such a long time. Do you want to get well? Sir, I don't have anyone here to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else gets there first. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. The day this happened was a Sabbath. So in this opening scene of our drama today, we see really three ways that Jesus cares about the physical well-being of this man. Write this down in your outline today. The first thing is that Jesus knows our story. Jesus knows our story. Here we see the story opening up and Jesus is on his way going up to Jerusalem. And we really aren't sure which Jewish festival this is, but we see that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to honor the divine law given by God in Deuteronomy chapter 16. And the deal is that every Israelite male was to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus is observing that. He's obeying this law from God. And Jesus comes upon really a tragic scene. A tragic scene, and next to a pool, this pool actually we found, archaeologists have found this and they have uh, uh, explored it, been able to see uh, some of the things from Scripture there uh, in real life, there in Israel. And Jesus comes upon this scene and he sees the paralyzed people. He sees blind people. 
He sees people who can't walk, invalids. And in some ways, this really is an illustration of the spiritual condition of Israel at this time. People were helpless. People were hopeless. They had no other hope, no other way to try to find a solution for their physical issues than to come to this pool and hopefully be healed by being the first person into the water after it started bubbling up, probably from a natural spring. But here's the thing. I've actually got something interesting to share with you about our text today. If you look, for those of you who are good with numbers and keep track of those sort of things, if you look for verse number 4 in your passage today, you're going to notice verse 4 is missing. Verse 4 is missing. Now you, want, you might say, okay, that's pretty weird. Why would we go from verse 3 to verse 5? Well, here's the reason. The statement in our footnote, it's probably in the footnote in your Bible at the bottom of your page, the footnote about an angel of the Lord stirring the water and the first person stepping into the pool, uh, possibly being healed, that's not found in, uh, that is found in some of the early manuscripts, but not in the earliest manuscripts. So that omitted verse 4 really should not be considered a part of Scripture. Although verse 7 does give us some clues that tells us people believed something like this may be going on. There may be an angel coming to bring healing to people. Maybe something happened in the past and they thought, this is what we should try to do. But as Jesus comes to this man who is waiting, hoping, hoping that something could change his circumstances, John tells us that Jesus knew he'd been there for a long time. Jesus knows his story. Jesus knows your story. But that's not all. Jesus' care for the man goes further than just knowing his story. He knows his story, but he also hears our supplication. Jesus hears our supplication, and supplication is a word that just means a request that we bring before the Lord, a request that we have for the Lord. Jesus says to the man, do you want to be healed? Jesus wanted to know this man's desire. He was peering into the deepest longings of the man's heart and the man shared what it was that he wanted but he's still clouded by his powerless human strategy all he can think to say to jesus is sir i have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up while i'm going another steps down before me Maybe you've had this experience. Maybe when you're checking out uh, at a gas station or at Jewel Osco, somewhere like that, and you're checking out and you look over and you notice that someone's buying lottery tickets, maybe buying some of those scratch-off cards, hoping, hoping as they scratch with that penny that something will change their circumstances in a big way. To me, that's always a sad scene because it rarely does. Those things rarely come through and change circumstances for the better. Up until now, this man has been doing the same thing, hoping that he wins the jackpot for his health. Hoping, hoping for healing, and for 38 years, this superstitious pool has been the only glimmer of hope for this man. Until now. Because Jesus knows his story. Jesus hears his supplication. And the third thing you can write down in your outline today is that Jesus heals sometimes. Jesus heals sometimes. 
So here comes the moment. The moment that the man has been waiting for for 38 years. Jesus heals him in an instant. He tells the man, pick up his bed, pick up his mat, and to walk. What a scene that must have been. To look and see what's happening in this man's body, this miracle as he stands up and he realizes, I can stand, I can walk, I am healed. What a testimony that must have been to see the power of God through Jesus Christ healing this man after 38 years. But not everyone was healed at that pool today. Not everyone that day was healed when Jesus brought out this miraculous power. Why was that? They all had need. They all had issues that they needed to be solved. Jesus could have done it easily, and with the word, not even speaking, he could have healed them all. But Jesus gives life and healing to those that he chooses. His ways are higher than our ways. We don't understand. But what we do know is a campaign of physical healing for all those maladies and uh, issues that the people struggled with. That was not his main focus. This is not the ministry that he was called to. We actually see just a few verses down. You can probably see it on the same page. In John chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. We can see Jesus care for our well-being. Jesus knows our story. Jesus hears our supplication and he gives healing to some. How does this make a difference in our life though? Have you ever wondered, does Jesus care about my physical pain? Maybe that's something that you struggle with, chronic pain in your body. Jesus knows your story and he cares about your pain. Maybe you struggle with a disability. Jesus knows your story. He hears your supplication. Maybe your physical condition leaves you feeling hopeless. Jesus is near to you. Jesus knows. He hears. And we can ask for healing. James 5 tells us clearly that we can and we should ask God for healing. That's actually something I've done in my own life. I've had the elders of Village Bible Church come, lay their hands on me, Put oil on my forehead and pray for me. Pray for healing. When I was dealing with sickness over a decade ago. And I don't know what all reasons God had for that in my life. But here's what I do know. Some of those things that I struggled with physically are no longer an issue for me. I believe that that healing that was brought to me was done by God. I believe every healing, every instance of healing in people's lives on a physical level is from God. God who all gifts, all good gifts come from him, come from above. What I do know also is that God used that struggle in my life. God used that time to bring some personal confession, to teach me some things, and even to bring reconciliation with a fellow believer. We can pray for that physical healing, but recognize that the answer sometimes is no. Sometimes it's wait because God may have other plans in our spiritual lives. And that's the second thing I'd like you to write down in your notes today. The second proof that Jesus cares more about true healing than false holiness is this. Jesus commands spiritual repentance. Write that down 
in your notes. Jesus commands spiritual repentance. When I was in high school, uh, Emily, my wife, uh, was in the same group of friends as I was. We weren't married at that point. We were still in high school. Uh, but we were in the same group of friends at the Sugar Grove Campus Youth Group. We've got so many great memories of uh, going on a mission trip to Ireland together and uh, going to fall camp with our uh, friends um, all together, having a great time there, being encouraged to live our life for the Lord One other uh, thing that I was always excited about was coming together each week for student ministry to be able to get to know the Lord better and be encouraged in our walk with him. One event that uh, I remember we were really looking forward to was a concert, a concert by one of our favorite bands called Sanctus Real. And First Press there in downtown Aurora was hosting a concert and we were all about it. We were excited. Uh, I jumped into uh, my dad's Jeep. We all piled in, and uh, we were going to go to this concert. So all the guys were in my car, and all the girls were in Emily's car, and I was taking the lead. So off we went driving, and uh, I hadn't done a whole lot of driving in downtown Aurora, but it came time for us to turn over onto Downer. And uh, for those of you who have been around Aurora, you probably know what's about to happen in my story. Because as I was taking the lead, we turned onto Downer, And it took us a couple blocks driving in downtown Aurora on Downer to realize that all the cars were facing our direction. And that's when we realized we were driving the wrong way down a one-way street. So not only was I doing something that was wrong against the cars around me, I was doing something that was wrong against the laws of Aurora and Illinois, the United States. So in that moment, I had a decision to make. I could either keep ahead with what my plan was, keep ahead with what I was doing, or I could say, you know what? I yield to the authority in this situation, and I am going to change my route. And after a decent amount of screaming, not only in the ladies' car behind us, but in the guys' car that I was in, we quickly turned off and we yielded to the authority. We repented. We turned away from our wrongdoing in that time. And that's the exact same thing that Jesus calls us to do in this passage. Jesus cared about this man's physical well-being, but his love goes deeper than that. Jesus' love extends beyond his physical well-being, but goes all the way to his spiritual well-being as well. Jesus values true healing over false holiness every day of the week. Let's watch together again as our passage of Scripture continues to unfold. So the Jewish authorities told the man who had been healed, This is a Sabbath, and it is against our law for you to carry your mat. The man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. Who is the man who told you to do this? But the man who had been healed did not know who Jesus was. For there was a crowd in that place, and Jesus had slipped away. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. You're well now. So stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Then the man left and told the Jewish authorities that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
Well, I already told you that Jesus commands spiritual repentance, but I want to tell you a few things about what repentance is. The first thing is this. Repentance is turning from sin. Repentance is turning from sin. So if we go back to our scene here in this passage, John gives us a clue that some drama is about to happen. Have you ever been watching maybe the season finale of uh, your favorite TV show and you're watching the last episode of the season and there you are and in the last five or ten minutes, everything starts to get wrapped up. All the stories are coming to a close and they're letting you know, oh, this is what happened in that situation. And you're really starting to feel at peace and like everything's closing down and you're feeling really good and comfortable. And then all of a sudden, in the last moments, you find out some sort of conflict that you didn't see coming. And now you've got a cliffhanger that you've got to wait until next season to see what's going to happen. At the very end, you see, wow, Hopper, he's still alive and he's locked up in a jail cell in Russia. And then you think, oh, wow, that's crazy. I didn't realize that was coming. Well, John does the exact same thing at the end of this verse. He says this, the man is healed, he's on his way, and John says, now that day was the Sabbath. So everyone that's reading and that knows what's going on in the cultural circumstances of that day, they realize, oh yeah, the Jewish leaders, they made some rules about not carrying a mat on the Sabbath. What's going to happen now? That's exactly what happens in our passage. The Jews, they see this healed man carrying his mat. And instead of asking things like, wow, how were you healed? This is amazing. After 38 years, how did this happen? We're so excited for you. Instead of saying any of that, what's their main focus? Hey, our rule is you can't carry that on this day of the week. Now here's something that I want you to recognize. There's nothing in the Old Testament that is specifically prohibiting such an innocent activity as carrying your own bedroll on the Sabbath day. Carrying a bed or what was probably actually just a sleeping mat or a bedroll was not breaking God's law of the Sabbath. But what it did violate was the rabbi's interpretation of that law, that human interpretation of the law. You see, Jewish traditions uh, had developed hundreds of minutely detailed and burdensome prohibitions against all sorts of things on the Sabbath. This included a, a code that forbade carrying an object from one domain into another. Jesus, at this point, had withdrawn, but he finds this man and he tells this man, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus commands spiritual repentance, and that means that the man should turn away from his sin. But actually, there's another aspect of repentance, and you can write this down. Repentance means turning to our Savior. Repentance is turning to our Savior. So if Jesus commands this man to turn away from his sin, what or who is he supposed to turn towards? The answer is Jesus. There's nowhere else for him to turn. Jesus was the only one who could bring an answer to his life, the physical healing that he needed. And now he's supposed to turn to Jesus. In just a moment, we're going to see Jesus 
bold claim as he begins to reveal more and more of who he is throughout this Gospel of John. We're going to see Jesus' bold claim that he is God, that he is equal with the Father in substance. Jesus is the Savior that God sent to save us from the power of sin, the practice of sin, and one day the presence of sin. But here's what I want you to know as well. Repentance is a component of salvation. You can write that down. Repentance is a component of salvation. When Jesus speaks to this man and to so many others throughout the course of his ministry, he comes to them with a command. And the command to repent is not just a random command. Jesus doesn't go out there and say, hmm, what do I think I will tell them that they should do today? Uh, I think I'll choose repentance as the thing I'm going to call people to. No. Repentance and faith is our response to God when he opens our eyes, when he illuminates us and allows us to see who he is truly. At that moment that God saves us, our response is to turn from sin to God, to Jesus. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 1. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And in verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John Piper believes that when Jesus says, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you, that he's talking about the eternal punishment in hell that awaits those who do not turn in repentance. Jesus commands this man, to turn in repentance, to turn away from his sin, and to turn instead to Jesus in submission to him. Jesus was the only way for him to have physical healing, and Jesus is the only way for him to have spiritual healing as well. So what does this mean for us? How do we live this out in our lives? Well, if you're a believer already, praise God for that gift of repentance. Praise God for that precious gift of God opening your eyes. It's a huge blessing. But if maybe you've never taken that step, maybe if you've never trusted Christ and repented of your sin, I want to encourage you to do that today. Jesus' command for us still stands. His words speak to you that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus cares about our physical well-being. Jesus commands spiritual repentance. And Jesus corrects our Sabbath confusion. Jesus corrects our Sabbath confusion. This last week I saw a video of a bicyclist in a race. And he was going there and apparently what had happened was something was wrong with his bike. I don't know if something broke or, or if he hit something or something was going wrong with his bike. But he decided, you know what? I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to pull over to the side of the road. I don't want to waste that time. I've got a goal that I'm headed towards, so I'm just going to keep on riding. But here's what I did think was interesting about this video. One of his team members on his team came up and was hanging out the back window of an SUV with a wrench doing something to the back wheel of his bike. He didn't set aside time to, to pull over, to have any sort of rest. He said, no, I'm just going to keep on plowing through. And as I watched that video, I thought to myself, that actually reminds me a little bit of myself. 
Uh, ever since I was a little boy, I've kind of been go, go, go. Lots of energy, got to get on to the next thing, got to keep going. And now I see that in some of my own kids as well. But here's the thing. When it was dark a few months ago, uh, during the winter months, one of my mentors encouraged me to start doing something that we found to actually be really helpful. So when we would get to Friday evening, we would have a family dinner all together. A good old-fashioned way to start our Sabbath each week and to say, you know what? Starting Friday evening for 24 hours, we are going to take time to rest, to have a Sabbath, to designate, hey, this is time for us to be resting, rejuvenating, and getting ready for whatever God has over the course of this next week. So we did this. We would come together around the table, turn off all the lights in the house. It was completely dark except for a few candles around the center of our table. And you know what was really interesting? My kids absolutely loved it. We didn't have any technology involved. We didn't have any tablets. Phones were not allowed at the table. Everything was moved away. We were able to come together and begin to enjoy the rest that God has for us. We haven't done that for a little while now because the sun doesn't quite go down until about 8.30 and we're not about to wait for dinner until 8.30. But it's easy to make idols out of our goals. It's easy to make idols out of maybe expectations that we have for ourselves or expectations that our boss or others have placed onto us. And when we come to a Sabbath, if we look at the Sabbath through God's eyes, we're able to see it as a life-giving, helpful way to be refreshed and to be putting our trust fully in God. Before we blow out our candles when we do those family Sabbath dinners together, we thank God for the rest that he earned for us. We don't have to keep striving. We don't have to keep earning. We can rest because of the work of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look again. As we continue in John chapter 5, let's watch our third and final scene from our story. And left and told the Jewish authorities that it was Jesus who had healed him. So they began to persecute Jesus because he had done this healing on a Sabbath. So as we look right now, we can see that Jesus corrects our Sabbath confusion. And there's a few ways that he does that. I want to tell you the first thing about the Sabbath, and that is that the Sabbath was modeled by God. The Sabbath was modeled by God. And here's the interesting thing, because it's easy to just villainize the, uh, the Jewish leaders, but I think we have to be honest about one fact. The Jewish leaders had at least part of their approach right. God told them to rest on the Sabbath, and that was a law that they were seeking to uphold. It may be the case that some of them or all of them were, were genuinely trying to get closer to God as a result of some of these rules that they had put into place. But sadly, I think many of them were missing God's heart in a big way. The first time in God's word that we hear about a Sabbath is real early on. Genesis chapter 2, the very second chapter of the entire Bible, is where we see God modeling the Sabbath. Here's what those verses say. Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested 
on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Sabbath was modeled by God. But not only was the Sabbath modeled by God, the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man. You know, I think uh, something that the Jewish leaders missed in all of this was God's heart behind the Sabbath. Obeying the spirit of the law rather than the heart, obeying the spirit of the law at the heart level is a whole lot harder than following the letter of the law. They decided to invent a letter of the law and to make that their focus. But Jesus healed this man. He went against those invented rules to show us something. To show that the Sabbath is a gift for man. It's to allow us to recognize God's sovereignty and to taste just a little bit of that eternal rest we will have in heaven with Jesus forever. Mark chapter 2, verse 27, records the words of Jesus when he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was modeled by God. The Sabbath was made for man. And the Sabbath was meant to be life-giving. Write that down. The Sabbath was meant to be life-giving. Jesus tells the Jewish leaders that God is at work every day of the week. Historical documents indicate that Jewish rabbis agreed that God continually upholds the universe and even in doing that doesn't violate the Sabbath that he modeled for us. As Christians, we celebrate the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, on Sundays. We come together and worship and remember that Jesus rose again on Sunday the day that the early church marked as the holy day of the week. We can enjoy the Sabbath. We can rest. We can trust that God is working and trust that God is taking care of us even when we are not working. So Jesus corrects our Sabbath confusion. The Sabbath was modeled by God. It was for the benefit of man and it's meant to be life-giving. But how do we apply that in our lives? What would it look like for you to be corrected in your Sabbath confusion? What would it look like for Jesus to correct that Sabbath confusion in your life? Do you need the reminder that the Sabbath is not about restrictions? It's not about man-made rules. It's to be a life-giving time of rest and rejuvenation. Or, on the other hand, do you need the reminder that God wants you to rest in his finished work? What is it in your life? We should do things on the Lord's Day that refresh us for his service intellectually, physically, and spiritually. So if you sit behind a desk all day long, working there, probably uh, your Sunday, your Sabbath, should look like taking a walk, spending some time in God's creation, maybe going for a bike ride. Just don't have your friends hanging out the back of an SUV with a wrench trying to fix your back tire. Or, If you work, uh, whether it's on the farm or in a warehouse, breaking your back, working hard all week, your Sunday, your Sabbath, may look like taking a nap on Sunday afternoon. Whatever it is, recognize that Jesus values true healing over false holiness every day of the week. And when I say every day of the week, 
I especially mean the Sabbath that we're talking about here. The last thing I want you to know is that Jesus calls himself the Son of God. Write that down. Jesus calls himself the Son of God. This last week, on May 19th, one of the greatest Christian apologists of our time, Ravi Zacharias, passed from life on this earth to eternal life in heaven with Jesus. And I want to tell you a little bit about Ravi's story. Ravi Zacharias was born in 1946 in Madras, India. His family moved to Delhi when he was quite young and he grew up there. Here's the interesting thing. Ravi Zacharias was an atheist until he was the age of 17. He actually tried to commit suicide by swallowing some poison, but when he went to the hospital, a local Christian worker brought him a Bible and encouraged his mom to read to him from John chapter 14, just a few chapters later from where we are today. He read that passage and he got to verse 19 and this touched him as the defining paradigm when it said, because I live, you will also live. And then he thought, this may be my only hope, a new way of living life as defined by the author of life. He committed his life to Christ in that moment, praying, Jesus, if you are the only one who gives life as it is meant to be, I want it. Please get me out of this hospital bed well, and I promise I will leave no stone unturned in my pursuit of the truth. And that's exactly what he did. In the very next verse, Jesus states, In that day you will know that I am in my Father. Ravi Zacharias recognized that Jesus is the Son of God. That his claims to deity, his claims to be of the same substance as the Father, are true. Ravi went on to start a tremendous ministry, serving for many decades, writing something like 30 books, communicating clearly with and with high levels of scholarship and intellectual ability that Jesus is God. Jesus' true claim to be the Son of God is something that was believed by faith for 57 years by Ravi Zacharias. But here's the thing. This past week, Ravi entered into glory, and now he can see Jesus, the Son of God, with his own eyes. Jesus calls himself and is the Son of God. Let me continue by reading for us again verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So now we've got a murder plot on our hands. The Jewish leaders, they want Jesus to be dead. And why? Why do they want him to be killed? It's because they could not fathom the Messiah that they had been waiting all these years for to be someone who disregarded their sophisticated Sabbath rules that they had put together. They especially couldn't fathom that the promised Messiah would call himself equal with the Father in the way that Jesus was doing. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. He proved it with his miracles. He proved it with all the fulfilled miracles from the Old Testament. And Jesus proved it by his death, burial, and resurrection, showing that he conquered death and that he has conquered sin. Jesus calls himself the Son of God And Jesus is God.
We're called to believe this. We're called to yield to Jesus as our creator, as our savior, and as our God. I told you earlier that ever since I was a child, I've longed to experience that true, undeniable, genuine stamp of approval. And I believe that's something that you probably at some point in your life have longed for as well. In our passage today, Jesus showed not only to the man, to the Jewish leaders and to us, he showed us that true spiritual healing cannot be done by human works, not be done by our man-made methods. He showed the man, the invalid human effort cannot provide that physical healing. He showed the Jewish leaders that our human effort, our human strategies cannot provide true spiritual healing. But what he showed us is this. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the only place that we can receive salvation. Salvation is available through Christ and through Christ alone. So I encourage you, turn away from superstitious methods. Turn away from self-righteousness. Turn away from all those things that we've tried to do on our own. We can find salvation. We can find unshakable approval in Jesus Christ alone. When we stand before the Father, he sees the blood of Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Jesus that his son gave to us freely on the cross. Rejoice. Rejoice in that approval that we have before God. Jesus values that true healing. It's available to us. He values that over false holiness that we try to come up with every day of the week. And we should too.